0: Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness Podcast. What do you imagine when you imagine a terrorist being interrogated by an intelligence officer? The former getting roughed up, the latter yelling, banging his fist on the table, and demanding that the detainee talk? Well, my guest they argue that using force in this way to get what you want isn't effective when you're dealing with a terrorist, or for that matter, a teenager. Their names are Lawrence and Emily Allison, and they're a married paraphrensic psychologist, as well as the authors of Rapport, The Four Ways to Read People. We begin our conversation with how, through their extensive experience in training police, military, military, security agencies like the FBI and CIA on how to conduct interrogations of criminals and terrorists, the Allisons discovered that literal and metaphorical browbeating was ineffective in inducing communication and cooperation, and that methods which build rapport were much more successful. We then discuss why building rapport in order to handle conflict, avoid arguments, and create connections is important not only in interrogation rooms, but at work and at home. From there, we dive into the four elements that make up this model of interpersonal communication, the last of which we demonstrate with some role play. And we end our conversation with the idea of the animal wheel, which different personality styles are represented by a mouse, lion, T-Rex, and monkey, and the importance of understanding your own interpersonal style and that of the person you're engaging with, so you can predict how they'll react and adapt accordingly. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash rapport. All right, Lawrence Allison, Emily Allison, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Brett. How are you doing? Thank you. Doing good. Well, it's great to have you. Uh, you two co-authored a book, your husband and wife, but you co-authored a book called Rapport, The Four Ways to Read People. And this book is, I think it's like a sort of a it's a like a, a layman summation of your, your both of your background in forensic psychology. So let's talk about that. What's your backgrounds? And then how did that background lead to this book?
1: Sure, sure. So, as you say, we're both forensic psychologists. I I guess we've got slightly different emphases. Mine, in simple terms, I've I've worked for the last 25 years mainly with police, law enforcement, security services, and military. And I guess you could categorise what I do as being interested in the decision-making of those people and in the way in which they communicate. And I guess a lot of my work has been directed at catching the bad guys, whereas with Emily...
2: It's probably treating the bad guys. I come at it from much more of a counselling angle, I think. And, and again, for the last sort of 20 years, have worked with various groups of offenders, both within the criminal justice system and also in the community, and lots and lots of emphasis on domestic abuse in particular. So violent offenders is, is really my sort of main population that I've been working with.
0: And then a few years ago, both of you got involved with a commission on interrogating terrorists. How did that happen?
1: Yeah, so in the wake of President Obama's inauguration, there was a change in mindset in relation to what would work with high-value detainees or high-value targets or terrorists. Certainly around the controversy post 9-11 with the so-called enhanced interrogation tactics slash torture, the view was A, this was morally reprehensible, B, it was ethically questionable, and C, it was illegal, and also, D, pretty importantly, it didn't work. So there were some tactics that were being used, which I don't know how much you want to get into the details of that because they're pretty unpleasant, that were being used in the wake of 9-11 that were, were really counterproductive in terms of the intelligence and information that was being sought. So with that in mind, Obama's initial idea was to achieve two things through what was called the high-value detainee interrogation group, which still exists. It's partly DOD, CIA and FBI. It's a a tri-service program. And the two objectives were to generate an elite group of mobile deployed interrogators to go into hostile environments and do interrogations but do them properly do them backed by science and do them according to the to the rule of the law so where we came in is was it was in relation to the science bit because up until that point prior to 2012 we'd been developing various different methods to look essentially at what worked with people that were highly resistant and so we came on board in 2012 And every year since then, we've been successful in securing research funding to do work on what works in these high-value interrogations. And I think what really demarcates our work from pretty much everyone else's in that, that group of people that receive funding was, unlike a lot of psychologists that have done a lot of work in relation to what happens in a laboratory with a student as a proxy for a terrorist our work was on the real thing. So we secured tw- nearly 2,000 hours worth of material of real field-based interrogations with people from ISIS, Al-Qaeda, extreme right-wing, the Garda of Shirkana, looking at Irish paramilitary interrogations. And so we scoured that database, largest database in the world, to look at what works. And you know, maybe surprisingly to some members of the public, What worked were the rapport-based methods, the so-called soft skills, which is a term I hate, but, but those were the things that worked in securing information, intelligence, and evidence. All right, so that's
0: a great transition to our our, our the topic and of the conversation in your book rapport because that's counterintuitive. You think, okay, it's a bad guy, but what you all found is that actually one of the first goals you have when you're interrogating someone who is a detainee, potential has information that can help, is you want to establish rapport. And I think we've all heard that word before, rapport. But how do you two define it? Is there like a like a scientific definition of rapport?
2: Um, I think really, the, the, I mean, that's the interesting thing is I think there probably wasn't up until maybe the last 10 years where there has been quite a lot of emphasis on trying to define exactly what rapport is. When you look at the therapeutic literature, it's it's really about connection. So it's not necessarily a kind of friendliness or getting on with others, but it's a respect or connection that's established through communication so that was really important to us that it wasn't about this simple idea of rapport is getting people to like you rapport is more about getting people to communicate with you whether they like you or not
0: and you all make a distinction in the beginning there's a difference between rapport and force when communications like what would be those differences
2: so I think with, with rapport, it's, it's really the opposite of methods that, that use force, because whenever you're using force to try and get information out of someone, usually that's through pressure, enticement, coercion, or threat. And all of those things are generating fear, So the the reason the person is telling you, it isn't because they're choosing to, isn't because they want to. It's because they feel frightened. And the difficulty with bringing that into an interrogation room in particular is that if I'm so frightened by what you might do, if I don't give you information and I don't have any information, then I'm quite likely to feel compelled to make something up. So you can massively impact the credibility of the information that you're actually getting by introducing fear into an interrogation room. When we think about our wider relationships, I think that's so important because, you know, fear can be a part of of our more intimate personal relationships as well. You know, that kind of parenting style of you know wait until dad gets home <laughs> attitude and that that just isn't a, d- a dynamic that you want to introduce into your personal relationships either
0: and it can also be in, in your work relationships you may, you might not be like when you you use you might use force but not even like realize using force like if, if this doesn't get done
1: there will be consequences right the other thing that sort of struck me that we often talk about when we're trying to get the basic idea over to cops or military personnel is look as soon as you show the hand that you are playing which is forceful you set up a dynamic in what you create what what will react so so reactance is if i if i'm saying to you you know you better tell me this or i'm you know i'm in an organizational culture you better get this done I might have been thinking, do you know what? I was going to get it done before you told me that I had to get it done. And now I may be thinking, maybe I don't want to get this done because you've so forcefully introduced that I have to. So it's a bit like the the, the other example that we always give is if if I say to my kid, you can have honey nut loops or Cheerios. Actually, do you know what? I've decided you can't have the Cheerios. Suddenly, that's the thing that I wanted. So you don't want to introduce anything, you know, someone might be working particularly well, as soon as you start challenging them not on not working so well, it implants the idea that they should, should resist. And so you guys make this case that the ability to establish rapport,
0: I mean, it's useful in what you all do, obviously, but it's also just useful for everybody because it helps us in our careers and help us make our lives more meaningful. And based on your experience, you know, working with not just, you know, detainees, but other people, why is, why is it so important to... Our well being to be able to develop rapport.
2: Well, I think it's quite interesting because for us, you know, bringing this into a wider context just became, you know, the seemed like the right thing to do. We were having lots of experiences where we were training you know, very elite individuals in a professional context. And what we were getting was in the sort of quiet times of the training. So over coffee or over lunch, we get people grabbing us and saying, you know, I really want to try to use this with my teenager because we're having a really hard time getting on. And I think we were just seeing people find it so applicable and so useful to their day to day relationships. And I think that's so important. We talk about in the book just how important rapport and healthy, content relationships are to to your well-being, to your health, to your mental health, but also your physical health. I think even Lawrence and I were quite shocked by a lot of the research that has come out showing how even your physical health is severely impacted by poor relationships, by isolation by not really feeling a connection to other people. And certainly, given what 2020 is putting us all through globally, um, that seems ever more poignant now.
1: Yeah, I mean, we refer to in the book the the so-called blue zones. So these these are areas around the world where they've got a disproportionately high number of of millennials, people that have reached over 100. And the, the only commonality between all those areas is that they value social relationships probably more than we do elsewhere so loneliness really is an actual killer you know at least least to ischemic heart disease inflammation and so on so just physically and in terms of mortality but like m said you know we were repeatedly getting cops and you know some some real tough guys that were coming to us in the windows of of our session saying you know what this is this has made me a better husband this has made me a better father i can connect with my teenager i can talk more successfully to my wife so that that's kind of why we did the book
0: and i think a lot of people think that rapport is like the social skill you either have it or you don't. But you guys make this case. No, rapport like any other skills, is a skill you can develop with practice. And if you don't use it, it can also atrophy. I think I, you know, you mentioned you know 2020, the year we've had and I, I think I read an article how because of social distancing. Like we've gotten, like, we don't have the opportunities to to flex those social muscles. So we've kind of, a lot of people have gotten socially awkward because they haven't had the chance to, you know, practice those rapport building skills that they they were able to practice before.
1: Yeah I, th- Sorry, yeah, I think that's true. You know, we've all got out of practice a bit. We're used to sort of talking to people over a screen, which is not quite the same. I think you're right. I mean, it'd be interesting to know what the consequences of this are. And I think technology's got us so far and I, you know, I, I dread to think what we would have done without it. I mean, our son you know, spent a lot of time on the PlayStation, but actually lots of parents moan about this, but that was his connection to other people. But you're right, those skills do atrophy. You've got to work on them. You know, We each have an inclination to behave in certain ways, and some of us might have a natural flair for it, but all of those things can be worked on.
2: Yeah, I'm just laughing because we've got a, a broadcaster over here who described it as you need the three sentences pass Now, where the first three sentences that come out of your mouth when you're trying to have a conversation, you just have people have to just let you off because um, we've gotten so (laughs) unaccustomed to to those casual conversations that you know we're we're really rusty, so we need to warm up.
0: (laughs) No, I, I, that's it's true. I've I've felt that before. So let's get into rapport, what it is, and how we can develop it. And you guys lay out there's like cornerstones of rapport, and you developed this acronym to help people remember: it's here, it's honesty empathy autonomy and reflection and let's talk about some of this into detail and in detail. let's talk about honesty i mean this one seems pretty straightforward you got to be honest with people but you all make the case that being honest when you're trying to build rapport is tricky because you have to balance like being straightforward and honest but like not too straightforward and honest <laughs> so how do you do that
2: so, I think it is interesting because now when I train in, in these techniques, I'll often describe them as like walking a tightrope. So, you are constantly trying to maintain that sort of balance. And honesty is, is a great example of that because what you don't want to do is be avoidant. And you know, you've got something that you've really got to address with somebody or a topic that's a bit uncomfortable or awkward. You don't want to bring it up. So we become avoidant or vague or we don't really say what we mean. And that's an issue. But then you also don't want to be what I would call sort of trout in the face honest, which is like, I'm really going to whack you with exactly what I think about what's going on because that can come across as demanding, judgmental, and again, generate that reactance that Lawrence was talking about. My absolute advice then, if you're going to try and stay on that honesty tightrope is you need to pair that honesty with some empathy. So all of these skills do tend to interact, but that's the kind of magic combination that helps you deliver something honestly and not fall off either side.
0: Well, let's move on to empathy. So how do you become more empathetic? And what does that look like? And like what does that look like when you're working with a a guy who potentially, you know, is a terrorist?
2: So empathy is a really interesting one because it's it's quite a hard thing to teach. It's really important to teach it in in early experiences so you know to children I think empathic development in children we talk about in the book is quite a significant important stage for them but empathy really in the way that we're talking about it again it's not this kind of soft fluffy warmth that those are different things you can still be warm you can be sympathetic to people but that's not empathy empathy is genuinely trying to adopt their perspective. So that means that you can't just think, well, if that was happening to me, how would I feel? You know, what would I do? That's, that's a step in the right direction. But what we're actually saying is, you know, if we've seen this, uh, for instance, with, I'll give you, I'll give you an example from our kind of interviewing context. If you've got a suspect who is a female Pakistani background, British-born blogger, so social media blogger, who's been arrested on suspicion of encouraging support for ISIS, and you are a older white male British police officer, how are you going to relate to that person? Well, empathic understanding is thinking... If I were your gender, had your background, your ethnicity, your experiences, how might I feel in this situation? And that is a really, you can see that is a really difficult challenge. So the further away things get from your direct experience, or in particular, your core values, the harder it is to empathize, Um, it's still possible. But it's the level of effort you're prepared to kind of put into that challenge.
0: So how would that look like on a, just a day-to-day, like work-a-day basis for someone who's not interrogating potential terrorists?
1: Well, I think, you know, people make the mistake of, let's talk about the three levels of empathy. Level one is I, I am able to articulate how I feel about something. Level two is I'm able to articulate how I would feel if I was in that other person's situation. So in other words, you know, as Emily gave the example there, well, how would I feel if I was, you know, in Syria and I'd I'd maybe been recruited to the cause? Well, I'm not a 19-year-old female. So level three is what you've got to do is you've got to, I mean, I like to consider empathy as more of a process of active imagination. I'm never going to be a 19-year-old female. I never was. But it's the effort that you make to try and go to that place and to try and seek the understanding of it, which oftentimes is through listening or, you know, an act of imagination. You know, I often draw up the fact that that prior to, you know, in the Victorian era, there was very little understanding or appreciation of what it was like to be poor until we started to get books about it, and narrative books, largely from Dickens, explaining the plight of the poor. And weirdly, once people started to read Dickens, they were using their imagination and engaging with what essentially was a fiction, but nonetheless representing the reality of what was going on in the streets. And that's when the attitude in Britain changed towards poverty. And that is an act of imagination. And I guess what we're saying with Empathy you know, it is an act of imagination. You don't have to feel warm towards the person, but you are reaching out psychologically, cognitively, and with effort to try and understand that person's positional plight.
0: Well, so it sounds like empathy. I think most people, when they think of empathy, they think of it as an, an emotional thing. It's like, well, right, you want to see, you want to feel what they feel, and it's not necessarily that. It's like you just want to understand, like intellectually. What's, yeah, I think what's it's, going on.
1: it's kind of mister Spockish. I don't know if, you know, I'm probably older than, than some of your viewers, but, you know, Mr. Spock always used to say curious. You know, it, it is what what is going on here? Why is this person behaving like this in front of me? I need to find that out. So as Em said, it's, you know, proper, true clinical counselling empathy is actually rather cold. It doesn't need to be. It's not a prerequisite of it, but it's definitely a more cognitive than affect-laden issue.
2: I think it's interesting as well when you do try and bring that into the realm of your personal relationships because, you know, that can feel a a bit clinical. But I guess we're saying if you're trying to empathize with your teenager and their situation, you kind of need to turn off your own emotion, which is, you know you might be thinking, well, you know, you'll get over it. You'll grow out of this, you know, stop, stop being so childish or whatever. But that's your kind of emotional mindset and value system coming into play. Whereas instead, if you're empathizing with your teenager, you're thinking, where is your head at, at the moment? What are you going through? What's this experience like for you? What do you care about? And, and that requ- that does require listening. It, re- it requires caring enough to figure out what the answers to those questions are.
0: And it'll let you, I mean, going back to like, if you're interrogating terrorists, like by being empathetic, you can figure out like what this person needs in order for you to get the information that you're looking for, right? They might they might be willing to give you whatever they want, but they they want to know that they're going to be safe. That after they give that, but you have to get be empathetic to understand that,
2: or even I mean exactly, I think that is spot on. But it's it's also like not assuming. Like for some, it might be safety. For some, it might be a platform to put their message across, and and that's the main thing. Is you do have to have this kind of receptivity to think. I want to figure you out. I want to know what is driving you, not just assume. Yeah. Well, the last person like you that I interviewed valued this, so you probably think the same. It's it's a very individual thing, I think.
1: I mean, perhaps as you know, as a classic example, as Em said, there's huge danger in assuming what makes someone tick. We had one detainee that was involved in. Basically, a, a shooting incident where they'd gone into a, a shopping mall, and the, you know, the, the, the attack plan was to go into a mall and basically kill people. And it was subsequently discovered, and 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 he said in the interview, "Look, I never ever wanted to hurt children. That was not my objective. I really, really care about kids. I didn't want to. I did never wanted to hurt a child." Subsequently, and later on in the interview, it was discovered that that person. Wanted to kidnap some kids and take them back to their country of origin. At which point, the interviewer said, Well, hang on a minute ago. Hang on a minute ago, you said you didn't want to hurt kids, but you're taking them away from their parents. And the detainee responded with, Yes, because your Western government is corrupt and you're corrupting your children. I wanted to give them a better life. Now, one might think, Well, how, how true was that? But it certainly came across as pretty genuine cognition about what he saw children as in the West doesn't make it right can't condone it but the interviewer had made the assumption that the guy was lying about not wanting to hurt kids and I actually think it probably was the case that that value system was so different to the interrogators that the interrogator wasn't sufficiently alive to the possibility that this, that he that he needed to find out more about the value system. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. And now back to the show. So we talked about honesty. We talked about empathy. Empathy allows you to know how to be honest without bludgeoning people. Let's talk about autonomy. So how does giving people autonomy build rapport and actually nudges them you know, to doing what you want them to do? <laughs>
2: So yeah autonomy is is a really interesting one because I think this is such a driver for us as human beings we we want to be in charge of our own destiny of our own decisions and as soon as someone tries to constrain or control us there's a real natural reaction to rebel against that and I think this this applies to so many different contexts and you can think about I mean for, certainly for me working with domestic abuse perpetrators for a, you know a very long time I've experienced cases where you know the, they'll be uh, sent for treatment and um, the idea is to say to them Well, it's a choice. You can choose not to go for treatment, but they know that if they choose not to go for treatment, that may mean they can no longer reside at the family home. They can no longer have access or contact with their children. These are huge stakes for someone that mean that that's not really a choice. That is really strong arming somebody. So one of the rules we always say with using autonomy in a rapport context, is don't dress things up as a choice when they aren't really a choice. So only go to the, the point of choice that you can actually use within your environment. So that that creates some interesting challenges for us, obviously, with suspect interviewing as well. You know, there's not a lot of choice about whether you're there when you've been placed under arrest and, and you're being interviewed.
1: But uh, I think the thing is, provide choice wherever and whenever you can. You know, in suspect interviews, we've, we've done role play scenarios where we deliberately get the actor to come in and say, look, I want a notebook to take notes. And weirdly, sometimes the interrogators will resist giving that suspect a notebook, and then it just becomes this massive struggle. Where well, why? Well, you've got a notebook. Why can't I have a notebook? Well, you can't have a notebook because you don't need a notebook. And this is all being recorded. What do you need the notebook for? Well, yeah, but you've got one, and you know that problem can go away. I mean, unless that pro- person is going to be a threat with the pen, which you know is a different story. If you can provide choice, you should because as soon as you withhold that, you're creating tension that doesn't even need to be there. And you know, to your question, Brett, around getting people to do what you want them to do the thing is none of these techniques are tricks the more authentic that you can be the better the more genuine you can be the better and actually you know if you genuinely want rapport with someone and they genuinely don't want to do something then that is absolutely their choice and re- and you know it's enshrined in law isn't it in relation to suspect interview you do not have to say anything you have a right to silence and weirdly and counterintuitively perhaps the more authentically you as an interrogator land that right to them we always say you know sell properly and authentically that they have a choice about whether they speak or not when it becomes procedural or perfunctory or robotic people are much more likely to avail themselves of that right to silence if it's delivered authentically and genuinely some people actually do want to talk or they're at least contemplating it and you should allow that contemplation to uh arise. Don't, you know, as soon as you push, they will pull. As soon as you're pulling on that, that, that tug of war rope, they will pull back. So just let go of the rope. What do you guys do whenever someone doesn't want to cooperate?
0: Like what's your, your next step?
2: Yeah. So we'll see lots of different forms of, of resistance or, or lack of cooperation. And I think our advice when we're working with interviewers or interrogators is to say, what do you know about this person already? What do you know they care about or have some indicators? And, and again, as I said before, you don't want to make assumptions, but you want to make a kind of informed hypothesis, a bit of a guess of it's they probably are interested or care about this. And so if you can frame your approaches or your questions or your appeals to them around values that you think they're going to hold, then that is likely to start pushing those levers that open them up.
1: You've at least got to be able to explore the blockers because the reality is if if they've got a genuinely and fully informed picture of the reasons why they aren't talking and the reasons why they might want to consider talking, then you genuinely do need to leave that choice up to them. But what's kind of strange is perhaps sometimes it is in their best interest to talk and they don't they don't, they're not fully appraised of the reason why you can sometimes get some very strong-arming barristers or solicitors that, that are instructing them not to talk. Well, the reality is legally, it's not an instruction not to talk, it's advice. And so we always recommend, you know, if you as the interrogator, keep that position clear in your head. It's not about what your solicitor or barrister or attorney wants you to do. It's not about what I want you to do. This is the situation. It is your choice. And actually, that is the strongest indicator that that person can make a fully informed, legally appropriate, and psychologically real decision about whether they want to talk. And look, the reality is, if you've got a hardcore Taliban commander that has got zero interest in speaking to you, there's nothing you can do about it. And, you know, that again is also their choice. But as soon as you start going down that slippery slope of strong arming, coercing, tricking, deceiving, and so on. The long-term pain that you will pay for that is that you could get bust information, you come across as the bad guy, you come across as the coward, and that will go back to those people in terms of the long game. That is a, a toxic route that you can go down that doesn't pay off. And it is, you know, the more you can leave it up to them, the better.
2: I was just going to add very quick, give you like a, you know, practical yeah. example of seeing that in operation. And this really shocked us even in in the analysis of the data. But, you know, like Lauren said, for some people, they're so dug in, it it really doesn't matter. You feel like it doesn't matter what you do. And we've seen that kind of where interviews, we call it a kind of kitchen sink approach, they'll just try anything, you know, to get that person to cooperate. But we saw a real difference if the interviewers maintained rapport-based methods, even with very hardcore paramilitary suspects. They would never say anything on tape. They were way too savvy. That wasn't going to happen ever. But they would give information up when the tape switched off. And intelligence in this forum matters a great deal. So, So we were saying, listen, it always matters. Rapport always matters, even if someone you know, looks like there's no chance of them cooperating. It's not worth going, well, let's just try anything.
0: So, I mean, it sounds like knowing how to give someone autonomy requires empathy. Again, you have to understand where they're coming from. And I I was trying to think of like a, a sort of a day-to-day example. And one that came to me is like customer service, right? When you're, you have a, problem and you go to the customer service person and the typical thing is like you just start demanding things da, da 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 and i think in that situation you would want to be like okay how can i give this person autonomy so you'd be you'd ask like is there anything you can do to fix this problem and that might and they might say no but at least like you're you're not you're not going you're not saying i'm going to go to your manager just like go to that person like hey you make the choice you're capable
1: of doing this yeah, I mean, I think that, that's a good example. If you, if you come in hard to someone that's on the front desk there that's got to deal with your BS, you, you're instantly setting up an environment where, where you're the wall that they want to knock down. Whereas if you come at them more openly and delicately and considerately and allow them you know, some, some decision-making in the process, you're going to get a much better result, aren't you? You don't become abrasive quickly because you get a reaction immediately back to that.
2: It's hugely important in parenting as well, and you think about you know trying to teach your children how to solve their own problems. If you if you're constantly sort of saying I lay down the law and I decide what's going to happen to you and I decide what you know your punishment is or what to do about this situation where you screwed up, and we never ever say to them, look, this is a problem. This is how things are. This is what's happened. What are you going to do to fix it? That's a really important lesson for kids to learn, which is, you know, own your behavior, take responsibility and fix your wrongs. You know, those are such important messages.
0: Well, let's talk about the last part of here, which is reflection. And you guys devote a whole chapter to this. So it seems like it's really important. So what is reflection and
1: how does that work into the process? Well, we had an interesting idea here Brett which you may or may not go for. <laughs> we thought it's probably best to illustrate this by example. So, I don't know how you feel about this, but would would you indulge us by letting Emily interview you for a couple of minutes and we'll we'll, okay. we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll see how it goes. Oh goodness, this is you're putting me on the spot here. <laughs> Actually, what I've noticed is that you're really good at reflections yourself. Yeah. So I don't know if you... Okay. You, throughout this interview so far, you've said quite frequently. So it sounds like what you're saying is yada, yada, yada. Well, that's a classic, what we call reframe reflection. And what you're doing there is we've said something, you're exploring it by saying, I think I've heard what you said, but I'm just checking, Is are you saying this? And that is a classic interview technique to squeeze more information out of people. So, so you've got a natural ability there, Brett, for, for, for doing a particular form of reflection. I'm ready to interview terrorists. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, we'll set you on one. Oh,
2: yeah. <laughs> okay.
1: So, so, Em's, you want We had an idea about how, how to do this. Stuff.
2: Well, it's entirely up to you. Again, <laughs> respecting Let's, your autonomy.
1: Oh, uh, Autonomy. Right? <laughs> uh, thank you. Yes.
2: Um, thank you. But I was going to just ask you, you know, just a, hopefully an a interesting question. If you could just say a little bit about maybe why you chose to start up this podcast or, you know, to, to give it the title that you did or just tell us a little bit about that.
0: Sure. So the whole thing started off as a blog called theartofmanliness.com back in 2008. And we just, I wrote content with my wife about how to, you know, men can improve themselves, be better husbands, better fathers, better dads. And then in 2009, I decided to do a podcast because I thought, why not? Let's do a podcast. It's something to do. And that's basically the reason why I started the podcast.
2: So you said that when you started it as a blog, which yeah, it's funny, isn't it? How technologies just advance so much. But when you were writing it as a blog, that it was about being a better man, being a better husband, being a better father. You know what? What made you want to kind of get those messages out to people?
0: Well, it's just uh, basically it was I was trying to fulfill what I thought was an unmet need in my own life. Uh, a lot of the men's publications at the time. Like magazines and things, I thought were very superficial, was too focused on six pack abs and wearing expensive clothing, and it just didn't resonate with me. So I figured I'm not, probably not the only guy that feels that way. So I'll create the men's magazine that I'd want to read.
2: Right? Yeah, that's really interesting. So, so kind of feeling like the the things that were aimed. At men, we're not really connecting with you. We're not really, you know, in line with your values and what you cared about. They were all these kind of, you know, superficial things: cars and six-pack abs and and the kind of stereotypes. and And so, do you think one of your goals was to get underneath some of those stereotypes of men?
0: Yeah, I would say that it was. I would say that that was one of the goals to say that men are more uh, multidimensional than people often think they are.
1: Okay.
0: Multidimensional. Yeah, there's you know, many faceted, you know, they've, they've have other interests besides six pack abs cars. They, they want to learn how to be better husbands, better fathers, They're interested in hearing from interesting people like yourselves, forensic psychologists, and how they can use those insights from your careers and their own lives. I think uh, sometimes we sell men short.
2: Yeah. So on the one hand, feeling like there wasn't anything out there, but then also feeling like what was out there you know, was was kind of derogatory toward what maleness is about.
0: Yeah, I, I would say that. Yeah, that's. I think that's a, a great way to put it.
2: Okay, that's that's quite interesting. I mean, listening to that, that tells me an awful lot about you and and what you care about and what you think about in terms of you know your yourself and your identity as a man and what you think what you would want for other men to feel as well that you you know you want there to be a place for men to be interested in parenting be interested in big ideas not just this kind of broad stroke surface media idea of what masculinity is
0: yeah no definitely (laughs) i'm on board
1: (laughs) (laughs) okay so we'll stop there so the techniques there i mean i mean they're probably pretty apparent but what you'll hopefully have noticed is that there isn't actually much questioning what you're doing is reflecting back what you're hearing to seek more information we often talk about i mean what people say are the you know the words that people say are the bit of the iceberg that you can see above the water but what you can't see is the size shape and dimensions of what sits beneath it so what you're doing when you reflect is you're you're throwing some of the words back in order to try and explore what the thoughts values beliefs and feelings are under the system so you know a lot of what emily was doing there was what you've been doing with us was we, which was look it's you know you've, you've started the the podcast you've started this uh, art of manliness and that seems to be about one a reaction to what was out there and a lack of something two that men were being done a disservice and you said that the key thing that stood out for me at the early part of that conversation was you said an unmet need so depending on what you want to explore and what direction you want to go in you would reflect back the things that you wanted to understand more about. So it, the the art of reflection is to know where you want to go and and what you want to find out about the person. You can actually travel quite far, quite quickly. And you know, I think we've got a better understanding of your motives around what you do quite quickly. But I mean, hey, what what are your reflections on that? No, it was I was I was. Uh, it's interesting because yeah,
0: you didn't. You guys didn't both of you, well, Emily primarily was just saying, was just kind of reflecting back what I said to her. And it, it puts you in a position, like at least it put me in a position where I was like, well, yes, then I want to refine that some more. So I was giving like, I would give more and more information. So loud is basically, I saw it as a tool to fine tune what I was trying to say. And then Lawrence, you you chimed in when I said multidimensional, you just said multidimensional. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> not, not not, accusatory or anything, but it was just like, oh, what, is, what do you mean by that? And I had to be like, well, to, it forced me to <laughs> to start
1: talking more, what I meant by that. Yeah, so that's what we call a simple reflection. You you pick out, oh, so the other thing that I could have reflected back was unmet need or superficial, you said. So, you know, depending on where you want to go with it, you, you can pick out apart the bits that you want to explore a bit more. And as you say, the funny thing is, is the person being on the receiving end of it, you start to think about things that you are in your head that you haven't previously articulated. So you actually kind of get a better understanding of your own thoughts and feelings. I mean, the Ems is just written down, not six pack as well. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so you wouldn't simple reflect if I'd said to you, um six pack <laughs> right 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 you yeah, know that would, that's irrelevant that would be the it's not, wrong thing it's to not reflect. what we're wanting to talk about so we don't reflect what we don't want to know more about or what's off topic because it, it's not going to take us in the direction we want to travel
0: okay that was really that was really useful i think it gave people a good idea of how to use these things you guys do this other example that I loved because it was funny, but like the the example you give in the book is the question that I think a lot of men might have heard from either wives or girlfriends. It was like, and the question is, does this dress make me look fat? Right, and right, and, that, you're, that and tricky, one. right? Yes. And everyone knows, every dude knows Like that is a trick question. So, but <laughs> well, did, but with the here process, it's possible to you know cut this Gordian knot and uh, and answer it. So. <laughs>
1: It is so do you want us to role play is Yeah we, let's you know, let's role, really play do you to role play this Or <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe I should be this person right, Yeah yeah right fat, we yeah do you, it's, I'll be the I'll be the the questioner Okay M's old oh, man I, I don't know if I can go out in this I I think I look fat Do you think I look fat
2: Why are you feeling fat at the moment
1: <sighs> Yeah yeah I am feeling a bit of a chub to be honest I think I you know since I've gone past 50 I I think I'm looking a bit of porky
2: so you're worried, you're worried about how you look? How do you feel?
1: Yeah, I feel fat. So do you think I look fat? I shouldn't probably wear this out, should I, right?
2: Well, what is making you say that about, about what you're wearing?
1: Well, look, it's bulgy here. I can barely get my belt around my waist. That's not a good look, is it?
2: So if you go out dressed like that, how are you going to feel?
1: On display as something that shouldn't be seen. What do you think I look like?
2: Okay. Well, I wouldn't want you to go out feeling like that about yourself. I want you to wear something you feel comfortable in, you know?
1: So you do think I look fat?
2: So if I know you're asking me, you're asking me this question, aren't you? Do you look fat in that? And that's such a difficult thing. Cause if I say to you, yes, then I don't want to hurt you. I don't want to upset you. Um, But if I say to you, no, you're said to me, you feel like it it doesn't fit and it doesn't fit you right. and You don't feel comfortable in it. So, you know, if you're feeling like that doesn't look good, then we should do something
1: about it. But Don't you think I have put a few pounds on?
2: Well, if you think you have and you're saying your clothes are tight. Yeah, I think we both have, you know, our diet's been rubbish lately. Do you think that's true?
1: Yeah, I guess so. Well, we, We should maybe, I don't know. We should maybe think about doing some more exercise or anyway, I'll put another shirt on, I guess.
2: Okay, well let's yeah.
0: Okay, so we'll kill it there. <laughs> All right. Well, so let's let's do some reflection there. I mean, one thing I noticed that Emily did was that she was honest, right? There's that point where, you know, Lawrence kept pushing the question and Emily was like, I was Look, horrible, wasn't I look. <laughs> Emily says, Look, if I say yes, you're going to feel bad. But if I say no, and you go out and you don't feel comfortable, that's not good either. Right. So there was some honesty there.
1: Yeah. And you know, would I have felt hurt with that? No. If Emily had said, if I'd said, you know, do I look fat in this? She like, yeah, you do yeah. look a bit fat. That kind of would have been too quick and too brutal. But what she did was ask me how I felt about it how comfortable I felt. And you know, Ems, I don't know if you want to talk about the rule of three.
2: Yeah, we're often, because these things are hard to remember in the moment, aren't they? And so we kind of try to give these little tips and pointers. And one of them that we often say is use the rule of three with reflections. So if you get something thorny or a difficult conversation or even a topic that you're trying to pursue, you can knock three times but once you get to the fourth knock, you need to actually be honest, deliver the bottom line or actually leave that conversation because it's not going to actually progress in a, in a positive direction.
1: So with the, with the fat example, I, th- you know, I think I gave it to Ems three times. Do I look fat in this? And the response was, how do you feel about it? Well, I feel a bit overweight and I can hardly get in my clothes. And so do you think I look fat? Well, how are you going to feel when you go out? And then the third time when I asked was so you know I have put some more pounds on, haven't I? It w- at which point she said yes. So she's used reflection a couple of times to explore how I feel about it and why I've said it and what do I think. But ultimately, because she's done it with some empathy and some concern, and of course, you couldn't see her face it, but she looked like she did care. Um, <laughs> you know, she's able to say, and I didn't feel offended that, and and, that, and also we were moving towards a resolution. Maybe we should do something about this, and you know, I felt, I felt supported. I didn't, you know, she'd answered the question honestly, but had explored the reason I was saying this first. So it's a, it's a it's a good it's a good technique to to if if used a couple of times and honestly and empathic that's why all these things need to be used in combination really, you know the reflection stuff is a, is a a tactic but your honesty and your empathy needs to be a value that you bring into the room.
0: Right. It's not like a linear thing. It's not like you're honest. It's like you're doing these things all at once. Right. Right.
2: I should maybe point out, though, that and obviously this is a case across lots of different contexts. But sometimes there is a time where you have to give the bottom line to somebody. You know, if say you're, you know, you've got to let somebody go at work, or you've got to, you know, impose a punishment on your child for something they've done, or certainly for our circumstances. (laughs) But you know, we've got urgent safety interviews in terrorism in interviewing where, you know, literally it's the kind of ticking time bomb scenario. There are questions that need to be put to someone urgently and a, and a bottom line that has to be given.
1: And things that can't be given as well. You know, you get detainees saying, you know, can I, can I speak to this person? Can I do this? No, you can't do that. And here are the reasons why. So you need to be able to give the hard messages. Definitely.
2: and, And the way to do that, just to hang on to this is, is, if you've got a bottom line to deliver, always pair it with empathy at the front end. Even if you're you've got your own emotional reaction to whatever it is, try and pair it with some empathy at the front end. So give that bit of understanding. I think I say in the book, we call it the toddler in the t shirt technique, where you know, you give that understanding. And that's that's an example where the toddler says, I want to wear my dinosaur t shirt to nursery today, mommy. And you say, well, you can't, darling, it's wet. And they say, well, I want it. And you say, well, you can't, it's wet. And they say, well, I want it. And round and round we go, we're never going to give that bottom line of you're not wearing the t-shirt to nursery unless we give some empathy first. And, and people think, they think it's indulgent. They think you should just say, you know, no, just do it. But people can't hear the message unless they have their perspective acknowledged So for that example, you'd say, you know, I know you love that T-shirt. It's your favorite. I bet you're really looking forward to wearing it today. But you can't, sweetheart. It's wet. So you can wear it tomorrow. We'll dry it, hang it. Now you have to pick one of these other 20 dinosaur T-shirts that you own. You know, and that's like a really common example. But I promise you, we're teaching the same thing. When you're acknowledging somebody's perspective in in a terrorism interview, give that empathy first, and then they can listen to the bottom line.
0: So the hear process is you know, something you can do to build that rapport. But another part of rapport that you guys make the case is that there's a social dynamic going on. People are they're going to be confrontational. They're going to be submissive. They're going to be cooperative. They're going to be, you know, just just bulldozing. And you have to take that into account too And when you're trying to build rapport with somebody. So let's talk about this, these social dynamics. And you guys use sort of like animal totems to describe them. Can you kind of walk us through the what you call yeah. the animal circle?
1: Yeah, so th- this goes back to Leary's work, Timothy Leary. Some of your, your, your listeners may know Leary. He was known in the 1950s for being a personality theorist. And then he kind of went off the rails a bit and was... Engaged in using LSD and God knows what. But in the early part of his career, he came up with a really interesting idea. And the idea was that up to that point, personality theory had always been considered a kind of static trait that was just within the individual, you know, how conscientious or extrovert or neurotic you were. And Leary said, Well, okay, that's, I'm not disagreeing with that. But actually, part of what personality is, is only revealed when you see that person interacting with another person so if you like it's a kind of interpersonality theory and so he created this thing called the interpersonal wheel and for listeners if you want to fill in your own wheels to see where your particular emphasis is if you go to our website which is www.ground-truth.co.uk you can fill in a little inventory that will tell you whether you're mainly controlling or mainly cooperative or mainly a capitulator or mainly conflict-driven. But theory's argument, uh, Leary's argument was that in any interaction, there were two basic dimensions, power and communion. The power dimension, if you visualize a kind of northeast-southwest, the power dimension runs north-south. And as you go north, you're creating more power. And in so doing, the person that you're speaking to, you are wanting them to go lower. You're wanting them to go south and be more submissive. Equally, if you come into an interaction and you're very submissive, you are inviting a response where the person opposite you is going to be higher on power. So if you look at someone like, we always think of a good example is Gordon Ramsay as a a, a character that's very high on power. And what does he like when he's talking to other people? He likes them to be lower than him. So he's comfortable with a power dynamic where he's in charge and the other person opposite them is lower. So that's the power dimension. On the the horizontal axis, the west to east axis, you've got what we call communion or love. Now, this axis works rather differently. And at the west side, you've got conflict. And at the east side, you've got cooperation. And on the east side, where we talk about where the monkey sits, if you're giving out social warm vibes, you're expecting to get that back. If you're at the west side, which is what we call T-Rex, you're sending out conflict vibes, which is meaning that you're about argument and conflict and division and separation and debate. And those things attract each other. So in terms of this kind of totemic animals, you've got at north, the lion. You've got at east, the monkey. You've got at south, the mouse. And at west, you've got the T-Rex. Now, all of these areas need to be mastered, and all of them can be done pro-socially and adaptively or antisocially and maladaptively. So you want proportionate control and leadership. You want proportionate cooperation and closeness and warmth. You want proportionate ability to sit back, listen, and um, have the humility. And you want proportionate ability to engage in conflict without going too far and becoming attacking, punitive, and sarcastic. So, as with all these interactions between people, there are a number of things that you need to do. One, don't be too extreme on any of the dimensions. And two, know what you are dealing with when the person sat opposite you is displaying a particular form of behavior. So you always need to think about where you fit. And that, in a nutshell, is the interpersonal wheel. Well, and I guess let's give an example, like
0: the power dynamic. So from your your guys' experience, oftentimes you're going in Interviewing someone who's a who is a detainee, and they might be high on the line, right? So they're in charge, and maybe there's some high, uh, they're up high in the the Taliban or something like that. And so when you interact with them, they're going to give that vibe off. And so I mean, is your response? I mean, I think the typical response from people be like, "Well, I'm going to show who's the alpha here." But you guys say, "No, actually, if you want to
1: get some stuff done, you have to be." a little bit submissive. Correct. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, trust me, when you're teaching, we, we teach hardcore military personnel this, you know, the idea that they go submissive, you know, it's like, I, well, I ain't doing that. I'm not surrendering. But if you've made the choice, you've, you're in control of that position of of, you know, interpersonal surrender, that is a massive position of strength massive position as long as you don't acquiesce to the point where you're going so low that you're actually being bullied and you're becoming avoidant and uncertain and hesitant if your choice is to have the position of the mouse or the position of capitulation where you have humility patience persistence and the ability to sit back that is an enormous position of strength and when we looked at this statistically actually weirdly the strongest position to be out of all these four animals the go to position if you're struggling is go to mouse don't go to bad mouse where you're becoming uncertain weak and you're being pushed around but humility perseverance and the ability to listen and that is really a position of strength massively we've seen and trust me all the best and elite interrogators that we've seen and these are guys that have seen seen it all they've seen it all and the thing that they have mastered is that position of mouse it is a real position of strength if you've got someone that's hardcore wants to be alpha you know what? That's fine. That is fine. Let them talk. Listen to them. Seek understanding. Have the humility and good grace to sit back. It really is a position of strength. What do you do with like the the T-Rex?
0: So this is the this is a person who likes conflict. What do you how do you like let's say they're like like a bad T-Rex. Like it's not like they're not just yeah. bringing up conflict because I mean sometimes you know conflict is good because that that's how you figure out what where differences are. But this person just
1: wants to just cause a ruckus. What's your, how do you respond to that? Well, you, you. I mean, again, it's, you know, when we present this quite often, cops will say, oh, well, maybe I should go to the mouse position and try and warm it up. Well, that is an absolute disaster. You know, we've seen people in OCGs, organized crime groups that have, you know, been, been through the cop system a lot and they want a bit of rough and tumble. And the most successful interviewers are people that take that head on. They don't go bad T-Rex, they go good T-Rex. So, you know, even if someone's being really aggressive and unpleasant, you need to know what your bottom line is and you just need to give them a direct message. doesn't need, mean you need to be mean with it or attacking or punitive, but you match, you match that T-Rex position. So conflict begets conflict. That is where you need to be.
2: I would just add to that because I think, you know, this this is probably T-Rex is my greatest challenge.
1: M's is weak on the weaker on the T-Rex.
2: Yeah, and if I go T-Rex, I I probably used to tend to go bad T-Rex. So if I got pushed into conflict, then I would go bad. And learning how to go good is is quite challenging because and instinctively, you know, we know that based on the model When someone is attacking you and being insulting, being sarcastic, being derogatory, it it makes you want to argue back. It's very compelling to be drawn into their style of interaction. And the rule with this is, you know, when you do that, you're actually letting them control you. You're letting them set the dynamic. So by you being able to restrain yourself and pull back from that and be frank and forthright, you know, rather than attack back is, is a huge strength to hold, you know, it's you controlling the dynamic rather than them.
0: So it sounds like, okay, if someone's coming at you with conflict, you have to go back with conflict, but like not overbearing, like you're not going to start yelling at them, insulting them. You're just going to give them the bottom line. But would you also try to make um, sort of nudges towards like the cooperation, like find ways
1: where you two can cooperate? Yeah. I mean, the thing is with the model, you don't need to stay in that same position forever. You, you, you can, you know, as long as, like Em said, if, if you're making the choices and you've got enough self-control and emotional self-regulation to know what you're doing, you can start shifting that dynamic. But what you can't do is flip suddenly from conflict to cooperation. That's at the other end of the axis.
0: Well, Emily and Lawrence, this has been a, a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your works? You mentioned a website where people can take a quiz to figure out what's their preferred social interaction.
1: What, what was that again? Yeah. So our website is www.ground-truth.co.uk. And the book is called Rapport, The Four Ways to Read People. And actually, if you go to the website, there's a bunch of other, there's some free resources on there and reference to other books, papers, and and so forth and so on. Yeah. Well, fantastic. Well, Lawrence and Emily, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Thank Brett. You. It's great to talk to you. You take care.
0: My guests today were Lawrence and Emily Allison. They're the authors of the book, Rapport, The Four Ways to Read People. It's available on amazon.com. And check out our show notes at aom.is slash rapport, where you can find links to resources, where you can delve deeper into this topic. something out of it as always thank you for the continued support until next time this is brett mckay reminding you not only listen they win podcast but put what you've heard into action